Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. Today we're recording from beautiful Toronto and our guest is Alex Nguyen. Alex serves as the Senior Vice President and Head of Strategy and Corporate Development for First Service Corporation. Uh, Alex is responsible for driving acquisition growth across all of First Service's business platforms. He's also closely involved in the formulation and execution of the company's corporate strategy and growth initiatives. Since joining First Service in 2008, Alex has led the acquisition of over 50 companies across a wide range of industries. So today we're really lucky to have someone join us who's got great experience that's going to be able to really open up this topic. So, Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay. For anyone who's joining us today, I want to just give you a little history. I've known Alex for many years. Um, he's a very, very interesting leader, does a cool job, has a great team. And I was thinking about who we want to have on the show. And Alex popped into mind because what he does and what his team does is so interesting. And they do it from such a deliberate and intentional space with a lot of just strong ethics and strong thoughtfulness. So what we're talking about today is leading through acquisitions. And I want to start with some really basic questions so that anyone listening, uh, whether you are uh, really know a lot about acquisitions or if you're new to the idea of what it is, that we can all start the conversation off on the right foot. So Alex, welcome. Thank you. And I want to start with, explain to me, and again, we want to start with the idea that maybe people don't know what an acquisition is. Can you just give us the basic idea of what an acquisition is? Sure. So if you think about a traditional company, there are two ways to grow. You can either grow organically by increasing your sales, increasing your profitability, expanding into new territories, adding new products and services. And we call that organic growth, or you can grow through acquisitions. And that is the process of acquiring another company, either within your industry that does the same thing that you're doing. So you're gaining scale and mass quicker to generate more momentum and to establish credibility. Or you could do an acquisition in a completely separate industry if you want to diversify your business or something in between and uh, acquire a complementary business. Okay, cool. That is a really awesome way of explaining it. So it sounds like there's both organic growth is fantastic and then growing through acquisition is also neat. The interesting thing about growing organically is it's your company, it's your culture, you're going along with just people who are already part of the same thing. Where it sounds like acquisitions on the flip side, you're bringing in another company culture, uh, you're trying to merge two things that might have the same business but of course, they're going to be different groups of people. They're going to have different company culture, and they might even be nervous or resistant to the idea of joining a company. Absolutely. I mean, they both have their challenges. I think with any business, any enduring company, you've got to have organic growth. Mm -hmm. You cannot just continue to buy companies into perpetuity because at some point that, that culture clash, you know, integration challenges, it will erode your business. And we've seen many businesses uh, implode in the public space, large billion dollar companies that have acquired too much too fast, 
and they haven't taken the time to properly integrate the businesses, to onboard the staff, to train them properly. And uh, over time, they fall apart, or sometimes they fall apart very quickly in rather spectacular fashion. So, uh, you know, you've got to have organic growth underpinning the business. And some companies don't do acquisitions. They just grow very steadily organically, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. And other companies are very acquisitive. So First Service, uh, which is where I work, is an example of a company that's very acquisitive. Mm -hmm. I would say almost half of our growth historically has been from acquisitions. And we buy and we build businesses. So we're different than a private equity firm or a, or a large public vehicle that enters and exits industries, you know, every three to five years. We buy and we invest in the people, we invest in the infrastructure and we build and we hold forever. Yeah. And, uh, and that's how First Service has built. It started as a you know, small pool company by our founder, Jay Hannock. And, uh, over time we acquired other complementary businesses. And uh, 25, 30 years later, you know, we are what we are today. All right. So organic growth, it's great and it's necessary. And for some companies, acquisitions are also necessary. It's that nice balance of the two. I was really interested in what you were saying about how some companies, they acquire a ton of other companies, but they don't take that time to really properly integrate them. And that's really what I want to talk to you about today. Of course, I want to know about you know, how you find companies, like how you create those those connections, what matters to you. But one of the things that I have seen with you and your team over the years, over and over and over again, is the care of actually respecting the company culture of someone who's being acquired and bringing them in. So I'm going to ask you a big, broad question, and you can go in any direction you want. When you are actually acquiring someone, so you're now actually bringing them in, how do you lead through that? How do you take care of someone's company culture? How do you make someone feel that they're respecting from where they've come from, but also help them embrace where they're going? That's a big, uh, that's a big question. And, uh, there are many ways to answer that. I think it all starts with trust. Trust is the biggest thing, um, when it comes to acquisitions. You have to both trust each other, but more importantly, the seller who can potentially be your future partner, or even if they're selling 100% of their business, usually we do partnership deals. That's, you know, that's the underpinning of our success at first service. But in any event, the seller has to trust that you have a respect for what they've accomplished. You genuinely appreciate their business. Like you've got to understand this is their livelihood. Many times this is a multi-generational thing. Their mother or their father or their father's father started the business and it has been their livelihoods for generations. And as M&A professionals, you know, it's easy for us to lose sight of that because we buy and sell companies pretty regularly. We do about 20 to 30 of these a year. And I think over time, it's easy for, for you to lose sight of the fact that each person you're dealing with this is the biggest, one of the biggest events of their entire life. And when I interview people for my team, we've grown quite a bit over the years. One of the things I look for is do they have a genuine appreciation for the entrepreneur, for the family, for what they've built? Because through the course of a deal, which can last anywhere from two to six months or even longer, you're on the phone with them every other day, you're seeing them in person, you're spending a lot of time with them shoulder to shoulder. Mm -hmm. 
And you cannot fake that. It's got to be real and they will feel it. And if you don't have a genuine appreciation and respect for what they've accomplished, what they're bringing to the table, what they've built, at some point you know, during a moment of frustration, it will come out and they will know that. So I always ask them, you know, what, what's your connection to entrepreneurship? How do you feel about that? You know, what do you think are the challenges of starting a business? We interview a lot of people from Bay Street, Wall Street, investment banking who, who aren't as attuned to entrepreneurship. They're used to dealing with large corporations, institutions, and lawyers, and they do the billion-dollar deals or in the headlines, and the way they do transactions are much different than the sellers that we engage with. And our interactions, I would say, are much more intimate and real because we are talking to the seller directly. We're not yeah. negotiating through armies of lawyers and advisors and the McKinsey's and the Goldman's of the world. So when I see investment bankers and I talk to them, I can quickly get a sense for whether they have a genuine appreciation for the entrepreneur. And it's not, you know, I don't want to criticize them. They are extremely bright, talented individuals, mm-hmm. but it takes a certain person a certain personality and i think to a large extent a certain background to really have that genuine appreciation for entrepreneurship and building a business Mm -hmm. and a lot of people will say well you know a 10 million dollar business a 20 million dollar business and that's really beneath me i came from goldman sachs where i was doing two billion dollar deals and in my mind i'm thinking it's not gonna work you know you're gonna spend I can't send this person to Omaha, Nebraska, mm-hmm. where, uh, you know, they don't speak the same language and have this person throwing around their, you know, MBA terms. It's just going to turn them off. But more importantly, in their mind, they're not going to have a genuine respect and appreciation, at least not off the bat. They can develop it over time. Anyone can change. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, we really look for people who are grounded, who've been exposed to entrepreneurship, who've had to deal with small businesses, mm-hmm. family businesses. Like, mm-hmm. we love that yeah. because they understand the struggle. And one thing I always tell, you know, younger people, whether I'm interviewing them or whether I'm, they're on our team or not, because they've gone through business school, MBAs, Ivy League schools. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about this person who may not be as sophisticated as you. They may not have that MBA. Um, they may not have a CFA. You may have to walk them through basic financial concepts. But you talk to them and you think about they're selling their business. They're about to sell a business for $10, $20, 30000000 million. That's probably more than you or I will ever make in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. Who's... Who's the smart one? How, <laughs> totally, you know, man. How can you possibly not respect that? Yeah, right? Yeah. You may have to go through agonizing pain, explaining formulas and working capital. But at, at the end of the day, you're talking to someone. You know, if you're not going to respect what they've built, at least respect what they're worth. Yeah. So there's all of the stuff that you just said. And they're so cool, man. And this is why I want to talk to you about it. So I've worked, I mean, I work with tons of companies um, and most of them who who grow at least partially by acquisition and what's always stood out to me about the style that you have as a leader it's just like really human looking at these businesses not just like something to like buy and trade in you know like oh we got this business now we'll get rid of it there's just a lot of focus on the human side of it so i'm going to ask you some tough questions about you sure okay you talked a lot about trust and what i loved about what you just said was you didn't just talk about trust as this big marquee term. You started breaking it down. Like trust, from what I'm hearing from you, trust is developed by really understanding where people come from and not necessarily the region of the country they're from. 
but more either they started the company or their parents started the company or their grandparents started the company. The idea that there's a real personal connection to that business and you want to respect that. That is a great way of building trust. And I think there's more that goes on in your process. I want to start asking you some questions about that. Very specifically, as you've grown in this role, what have you learned about yourself and what have you had to change? You know, when I joined First Service three years out of school, before that I worked at a private equity firm, one of the largest in, in Canada. And before that I worked in investment banking and I went to business school. So I had the prototypical background of those guys that I was just making fun of. <laughs> and I came to First Service and I was throwing around the buzzwords. I was getting on the phone. I was meeting people. I was showing up at meetings with nice watches and everything. So I learned a lot of things from our founder, Jay Hannick, who I worked closely with during the early years. And one of the first things he taught me when he'd hear me on calls, I'd be throwing around the buzzwords like synergies and cost savings. <laughs> and he'd be like, I don't understand what you're talking about. Drop the business talk. You know, talk real. Yeah, Be yeah. real. Yeah. Because entrepreneurs don't react well to that. And it comes across as disingenuous and you sound too smart. And even if you're, even if you are smart, you don't want to sound too smart yeah, because yeah. entrepreneurs don't buy and sell businesses every day like we do. And it's easy for them to get the impression that you're trying to take advantage of them, even if you're not. Right. So you really have to think about your appearance, yeah. how you speak your tone, how you're presenting yourself, yeah. and you're representing the company, and we are not corporate Wall Street, mm. first services, entrepreneur-built, yeah. family-owned, and that's what we have to represent. Can I dig into that with you for a sec? Sure. Okay. And I'm going to ask you a couple of personal questions, just based on what I know a bit about your background and share what you're comfortable with. Um, so one of the things, and you know, again, I've got a lot of experience with, uh, with you and first service. Um, one of the things that sounds like it's been a focus of, hey, get away from the concept of the business and think about how you're talking about the business. Like, how are you showing up? Like, how are you dressing? What kind of language are you using? Like, what's the watch on your wrist? All of these things are, we don't want to come across formally to people. But we also don't want to come across casually. You're not showing up in flip-flops and a t-shirt. For sure. You want to come across conversationally. That's it. And you want to connect with people in a real way so that there's no um, intimidation factor, but there's also like not some kind of sense like, oh, we're trying to like bully you. We're just have, trying to have like a real conversation. It's got to be authentic. Yeah. It's like you say, you, we meet someone for the first time and we are genuinely there trying to understand their story. What is your journey? What's mm -hmm. your family's journey? How did you get here? Mm -hmm. We want to assess the fit. It is 100% real. And, you know, if the fit isn't there, then that's okay. But that person has to feel respected and appreciated for what they've built. Yeah, 100%. And I love the idea. It's like get rid of the distractions. Get rid of the business talk. Get rid of the expensive watch. Get rid of the, you know, like all of these things that would signal either, you know, we're talking down to you, you little business owner, or, you know, we're trying to sell you some idea. You're just trying to meet people as people and do good business together. So in acquisitions, that's real interesting because essentially someone's livelihood that they have built up or their parents built up or their grandparents built up. You're trying to give it a new home, but that's got to start with understanding and respect and really meeting them where they're at. A hundred percent. When we do an acquisition, there are two kinds of acquisitions, as I alluded to earlier. There's a partnership deal. Mm -hmm. And this is when 
you know, someone is being at the grind for 10, 20, 30 years, they're hitting their 50s, even their 60s, and they've kind of plateaued, yeah. and they've been at the same level, yeah. and they want more. Right. They feel like they're in it alone, and they want some support. They want to be part of a larger platform. They want to elevate their company, and they want to learn new skills and develop as professionals themselves. Yeah. And it's hard to do when you're in it alone. Right. So they may become our partner, and they may keep 20 to 30% of the equity, and that's really our sweet spot. Right. So that means um, the founder or you know, the, the leader of the company stays in the company. Correct. But now they've got all of the resources that would be um, within your organization. Plus, they've got an opportunity to grow as professionals. Like they, they, Their company would have a bigger platform, but they as professionals themselves would also have a bigger platform to learn, grow, and develop. Absolutely. Okay, so that's the first kind. What's the second kind? The second kind is a 100% deal. Okay. Now, not always, but typically, this is someone who's in their 60s, 70s, there's no succession plan in place. They either don't have kids or their kids don't want to be involved with the business. Yeah. I probably don't blame them. It's a really tough job. Yeah. And, you know, it's time for them to move on to take some chips off the table yeah. or to take all of their chips off the table in this case. And they're looking for a home for their business. But it's still very personal. Right. It's a it's a different dynamic because they're not looking at it through the lens of, do I want to work with these people? Do I want to get married to these people? Mm-hmm. It's more, how are these people going to take care of my staff? How are they going to take care of my clients? You know, they've been building this business up. It's an extension of their identity. It's their honor. And in many times, their name is on the door. And they don't want a company coming in, gobbling it up, taking down all the signs and firing half the people for the quote-unquote synergies that we always make fun of, (laughs) right? That doesn't doesn't appeal to them. And honestly, if it does appeal to them, if they... If they're only in it for the biggest check they can get and ride, and, and to ride off into the sunset, then that's not the kind of business we want to buy because that tells us a lot about that business if that owner thinks that way. Yeah, yeah, cool. And, and we're going to get into all of that. I'm going to follow up on that, but I want to talk about your personal story. And again, share what you're comfortable with because um, your personal story, I believe, informs a lot of your approach to acquisitions and how you do these things. So can you tell us a little bit about where and how you grew up and then you know your transition into canada sure i uh i grew up in canada my, my family's from vietnam they're from the south they're uh they're from saigon a lot of them are still there i, I visited a couple of years ago for the first time which is an eye-opening experience and uh my mother wanted to leave the country this was shortly after the war it wasn't a good time for southerners and uh she she was abandoned by her husband, and uh, she went to a refugee camp in Thailand. So a lot of Southern Vietnamese families, they'll save up all their money, pack their suitcases, you know, for a couple hundred bucks. They go to a refugee camp outside of the country, and, you know, they get shelter there until they can figure out a long-term solution. Right, right. So my mom ended up in Thailand, and that's where I was born. That really wasn't how it was drawn up. A refugee camp is not exactly the most luxurious or ideal place to raise a newborn we're talking you know straw beds barbed wire it's um i've got some interesting pictures from uh, from my childhood but she did it and she did it by herself and i think it's uh when, when i think about the hardships and challenges that we have in our society today you know within our generation and compare it to immigrant parents and what they've had to go through it's just mind-blowing mind-blowing to me like i i can never compare or even um 
you know, give back or, or even, you know, give back a fraction of what my mom sacrificed for me to be in this chair today, mm-hmm. for me in this position to raise a newborn at a refugee camp. And then a year and a half after that, get on a plane, fly to a new country. She flew to Calgary. You don't really get to choose where you're going to go. It's wherever there's availability. Mm. She ends up in Calgary where it's cold. She doesn't speak the language. She's got a suitcase. You know, she's got a, she's a university professor in Vietnam. That doesn't mean anything in Calgary. So she's babysitting. She's tailoring. And eventually she worked her way into the school system. She taught herself English, but you know, the climate is really difficult. And, uh, you know, we kind of, we struggled for, for two years. I don't remember any of it, but she certainly does. And then eventually her sister was able to go through that same process. Her sister ends up in Toronto two years later where they have subsidized housing. And in Calgary, there isn't subsidized housing, at least not at the time. And we couldn't afford to stay there. So she flies to Toronto to, to get, to be closer with her sister and to get subsidized housing. And I was two and a half, I think, or three at the time. And, and that's where, uh, that's where I was raised. We grew up in, uh, what we call the West Lodge Towers, which is an infamous still standing building today in Toronto. It's, it's one of the longest standing projects that are still around. And I, and we grew up there in a bachelor apartment, 400, 500 square feet till I was 22, 23. And then once I graduated, I was able to rent a, you know, rent a condo closer to downtown to get closer to work. Mm-hmm. And once I had the financial means, I was able to bring her with me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, now she's right across the street from me, probably a little bit too close. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, she's happy and I'm happy. And, you know, everything I've got, you know, is because of her sacrifice. I can't even begin to imagine myself in her position mm-hmm. and, and, and to do what she's done. And I think that whole experience... You know, I didn't realize it when I was first starting to work. That really informs your perspective. And it's not exactly the same as starting your own business, but in many ways, it's the same. Can I I interject here? Please do. So first, thank you for sharing that because, you know, I did ask you quite a personal question. And I think that story is such a central part of your leadership. Uh, And I've seen seen that shine through a lot of times in just the, the way that you approach working with people. There's an interesting thing, though. What you just talked about, how do you think that informs the way that you look at people's businesses and their family businesses and the legacy and and helping take care of that legacy? So how you grew up and that whole experience, how does that inform uh, your approach to acquisitions? A lot of the businesses we buy are multi-generational businesses. And often at some point, someone was an immigrant there and they had to struggle and they had to make their own way because their education doesn't hold the same standing that it does in our country. Mm-hmm. And I think back to my mom, honestly, and I think about the struggles that she's had. And, you know, that just really resonates with me. And the fact that they've been able to start from scratch and to build a company from ground up, not only to put food on the table for their families and their, for their kids' families, but also for hundreds of other families, mm-hmm. for employees that they've created jobs for. Yeah. Like that really resonates with me and uh, I have a tremendous deep respect for it. Yeah. It's a lot different than, you know, someone like me who had a good education, 
and who joined a big company and, and who had all those means provided to them and who didn't have to create. So I look at that and I marvel at it and I, and I have a, you know, sincere, profound admiration for it. So when I connect with people, I think, you know, I hope that that just, that comes out. So if you were to say, and we're going to get into some nitty gritty about acquisitions in, in a sec, but if you were to say for acquisitions, what do you believe? And, and I'm asking for your opinion. I'm not saying for the whole business world, but from your opinion as a, as a leader who leads through acquisitions, what is a fundamental guiding principle that you believe people should live by when they are looking at acquiring other companies? You've got to say what you really think, and then you've got to do what you say. Yeah. And it's something so simple when you articulate it like that. But I think it's something that's very difficult to live up to. Okay. Okay. So that's going to lead me to my next question. How do you manage? So let's say you've acquired a company and um, people in the company are struggling. They're afraid. They're nervous. They're worried. Um, they feel like the ground is changing underneath them. Maybe they've worked there for five days. Maybe they've worked there for five years. Maybe they've worked there for 20 years. How do you help a company make that transition into becoming a part of, of your organization? So I think as a starting point, reputation really plays into it. Reputation is an important thing. We've done this many times. You know, we've got, at least at first service, we've been doing this for three decades of successful transition of family owned businesses who've grown and prospered and doubled, tripled, quadrupled their size as partners with us. Mm -hmm. So if we have that reputation out there, that makes it a lot easier. Mm -hmm. If we have a referral from someone that we've been partners with for a long time and they have buddies who've started up businesses mm -hmm. and they say, you've got to work with first service. I've gone on that journey with them and I'm extremely satisfied and they've been first class then that helps as well. So it starts by having a good reputation. Does. Let's say we're past that point. You know, like they're like, okay, we're doing it. We believe in your reputation. It, it adds some stuff, but now we're like, we're in the acquisition. You know, like let's say we're six months in, like things are changing. People are freak, like nervous, upset, resisting. How do you manage that? Well, six months in, if they're still resisting, then there's a problem. You really want to get ahead of it, even before the deal closes. And part of our job is to assess fit. Mm -hmm. You know, how has this owner run the business? What kind of culture do they have? Mm -hmm. Is that a good fit with our culture? Do they share the same values? If they don't, then we probably won't pursue that acquisition because you can't, you can't blend two companies that aren't, that don't share the same fabric. Yeah. Right? So it's not a one way trade off then. So it's not just, Hey, look at, you know, Whatever your culture is, you're going to join our company because we've got this great culture. You're actually also looking at their culture and For saying, sure. oh, well, do we want to bring in that culture? And will these two things be able to coexist or even merge? A hundred percent. So the first thing I'm hearing is we do a lot of research and we understand the company. We understand how it was led. We understand the company culture. The second thing is we have a strong reputation. So that means companies that are coming in, they should already feel a little bit of comfort that, you know, we've got a good grasp of how to do this well. We strive every day to be the acquirer of choice for every industry that we're in. Mm -hmm. When a family wants to sell their business, when someone is ready to retire or when someone's plateaued and they think, I want to sell my business, our goal is for them to automatically think of us. Mm -hmm. I want to sell to first service because they are successful, because they have done a fantastic job with other colleagues and connections of mine in the industry 
who have gone on to build very successful businesses and who have been treated right. They're the industry leaders. They will invest in technology. They'll invest in training my people. They truly care about my people. Mm -hmm. And as we go through the courting phase and the due diligence phase, you know, we're doing our work. We're doing our homework. We're trying to figure out, is this the right fit? Has this company been built the right way? We're constantly hammering this message in all of our interactions, in our dinners, in our coffees, in our calls, how we organize information exchanges, how we negotiate legal documents. It is constantly coming out. It's constantly permeating. And throughout this process, usually if we're doing our job right, they are getting more comfortable with us. And then we're talking to them about integration, about branding long before the deal has closed. We're working with that founder hand in hand to craft a message that represents their vision as well as our vision so that they can go to their team before we've met them for the first time during what we call on-site due diligence. Mm -hmm. And that owner, that founder, in many instances can say, it's time for me to make a big change. Mm -hmm. I've decided to partner with First Service. Here are the reasons why this is going to be a wonderful opportunity mm -hmm. for all of us. Right. Okay. So that sounds like a good, solid plan. And I know it's worked very well for you. Now I'm going to ask you the tough stuff. Okay. So I know you've done a lot of acquisitions. How many acquisitions have you, have you been a part of? Over a hundred. Okay. So over a hundred, some of those probably haven't gone smoothly. Some of those maybe have had bumps in the road. Maybe there's been relationship breaks. Maybe people within the organization have had a hard time. Certainly don't feel you need to share the company or any privileged information, but can you give us some examples of things when they've gone sideways? And you can talk about multiple different incidents. You could talk about one, but I want to know when things have gone sideways, when they haven't worked out, when there's been tension or upset, how did you lead through it? Again, it goes back to building trust. Mm -hmm. And it's not always smooth. I'd like to say all of our deals end up in a really smooth place and we work our way through everything. Some of them, you know, are very adversarial and sometimes a lot of factors are beyond our control. So one that we recently did in, in the U.S. earlier this year, there were two partners. They've been partners for over two decades and they just stopped talking to each other. They were in a very rocky place yeah. and that was a large reason why, you know, a sale was forced. And one of the partners really liked us and the other partner hated us. The other partner actually liked our biggest competitor in the industry. Mm -hmm. And that created a very, very challenging dynamic. Mm -hmm. And that partner would not speak to us. So we basically had to negotiate the entire deal through lawyers. And that was a four or five month tough, tough experience because you, when you can't look someone in the eye when you can't establish a connection, when they don't even give you a chance to gain their trust, it makes it that much harder. But, you know, that's an extreme example. There are other situations where people may have heard something about us from one of their friends, from one of our competitors, or sometimes by nature, they're just skeptical, right? They're not as stressing. We haven't had what I call the warm handoff from, uh, from a mutual acquaintance. Yeah. And we have to fight tooth and nail to gain their trust. Mm -hmm. And you've just got to be really patient. You've got to understand, you know, what their pressure points are. You have to spend the time to figure out what their concerns are. A lot of times they just need to talk to you and, mm -hmm. and spend more time with you and, and figure you out. 
So I think a lot of it is just patience, and the other piece is education. Education goes a long way because again, these people have never done a deal. Most of these people will only do a deal once in their lives, and they may have preconceived notions about how that should work. A lot of people think their company is worth X, Y, Z, and you know us as M and A professionals know that it's worth something different. Yeah. At the end of the day, you know, people. I think people in my chair like to say, "Well, you know, we have a lot of experience, and I'm telling you, your company is worth badoo badoo badoo." Well, that's not true, right? A company is worth what someone's willing to pay for it. Right. It's really an art. I mean, it's a science, but it's also an art. So yeah, if you yeah. can't convince the person on the other side of the table that their company may not be worth as much as they think, mm-hmm. then uh, you're not going to be you're not going to be successful. So, um, at, you know, we're getting close to wrapping up, but I, I want to capture something here. So, being a leader in M and A sounds like to me the first thing that's upfront is really meeting people where they're at, like understanding people's experience, understanding like their experience of building the business and also injecting your story into it. Like who am I as a person and letting them know a little bit of that. So sounding from where, how you develop um, these relationships, it's not just like, Hey, let's walk in with a bunch of suits and take over this company. It's much more like, I want to know this person. I want to know their story. I want to know their business and want them to know me. There's almost like a, a bit of a vulnerability there, like openness to letting people know you. It is very real. And I think to be successful, to be truly successful as an M&A professional at any level, you've got to allow that vulnerability to come out. They have to understand where you're coming from as well. Yeah, well, I, that's that's amazing. Um, all right, so we're, we're getting close to wrapping up, and I really appreciate your time. So anything that you want to message out to the audience? And, you know, keep in mind, our audience are going to be people who we're going to have CEOs who are listening to this who totally know this whole world and know it well. But maybe there's a message you want to have for them there. Maybe you want to encourage uh, a different kind of practice. We're going to have people who are M&A professionals. We're going to have people who are totally new to this topic in general. Um, And as you've noticed through this conversation, it's been as much about the discipline of uh, M&A as it's been about you as a leader and like your approach. So any messages or ideas that you want to share with our audience as we're wrapping up? I think the one thought I'd have is as, is, as you think about M&A and, and doing acquisitions, and if that's an important part of your strategy, then, you know, it's, it's, it's all of the things that we've talked about on this podcast. You've got to, first, it starts with your people. What are your M&A professionals about? What are their backgrounds? What are their values? You got to have the right people on your M&A team representing you and your company. And I think if you're in it for the long run and you want to build an enduring company with a, a top reputation that attracts sellers and potential partners, you got to be real. You've got to be real with people. Word spreads. Industries are very small. Communities are very small. And I think the natural tendency for a lot of bigger companies is to automate this process. Mm-hmm. Here's our five-step process. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do at this stage. And that, you know, that may work once or twice. It may work for a couple years. But in the long run, if you want to have a 20, 30 year successful track record like we have, and you want to be able to enter new industries and attract new partners and and find the right people, you, you really have to take a different approach. And it's not rocket science. I think it's just about having the right people on your M&A team, having that genuine respect for, for sellers and entrepreneurs and the businesses that they've built mm-hmm. and understanding the pressure points for them and then developing a system and a process 
that helps ease all of the stresses and burdens um, around selling a company. It's a gruesome two to four months. Mm-hmm. You are working night and day. Mm-hmm. You're dealing with lawyers. You're learning a bunch of new things that you've never had to deal with. And on top of all this, by the way, you're still running a company, <laughs> right? So it's uh, it's really difficult, and you want to do everything you can to ease that process and make them feel as comfortable as possible. And and you and it, and it starts with your people, and it starts with being real. Right on, man. That uh, I had like chills when you said that. You know, there's just a better way to do business, and um, I love the idea that you talked about a community because no matter what, you're part of a community, and that can be a community of people that do business in a way that's ethical, that holds each other up. And it doesn't mean like, you know, it, like businesses grow. So of course it means like, you know, businesses get acquired, but that process doesn't have to be nasty. It doesn't have to be hard. And again, that's why I wanted to have you on here. Cause I wanted to understand how someone leads through that in a really human way. Um, Alex, this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. And, uh, you know, we'll just uh, sign off here. So thanks everyone for listening. And, uh, Dave, let's drop the beat. Uh, that was a great conversation, and thank you so much to Alex for joining us. You know, I always laugh at this idea when people say, it's not personal, it's business. I mean, of course it's personal. We spend huge parts of our lives working, and the things that we work on, we care about. So business is personal, and those feelings definitely come up during an acquisition or a merger. Uh, it was incredible having Alex not only share with us best practices, but also his life story because it really helps inform our understanding of how we can approach mergers and acquisitions from not just a business mind, but also a community mind. So again, uh, fantastic conversation, and I hope you all got as much out of it as I did myself. All right, I'll see you next time on One Step Beyond. One.